Well, good morning, everyone. What a great crowd for the weekend after Thanksgiving. Thanks for being here. You guys, uh, anybody hungry right now? No? Two people. Okay, good. Yeah, that's about me too. Hey, if you have your Bibles, open them to John chapter 13. Uh, John 13, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one that looks like this, remarkably similar to this on the floor around you. It's page 751. And that Bible is where you'll find John 13. You know, usually I have a, uh, a story or a question or something to, to set up the sermon, but I think this morning it's kind of uh, universal language. I'm just going to use the universal language of props, and uh, I won't have to even ask you anything. Um, I just, I'm going to hold something up, and if you can relate, say amen. What the heck is this? This, uh, I found this in my bathroom this week. Uh, somebody had left four squares of toilet paper on the roll. Uh, very generous of them. I'm sure when they left, they thought, you know, I'm just going to bless the next person who comes in here and leave them just a little teeny tiny bit of toilet paper so that they've got something to use when they come to the bathroom, right? Do you, do you get this? Why, why do we do this, people? Why do we leave four squares of toilet paper on the roll? And and, and especially, I think, um, the reason that I'm inclined to make this change is because, let's just do a survey, all right? Let's just do this. We'll just attack this right here. One of the deep biblical questions of our day, uh, does the toilet paper go over? Raise your hand. If it goes over, yeah, good, all right. How, how about, if does it go under? You people are sick. <laughs> and so, uh, how many of you live in a house where somebody does it the opposite way you do? Yeah, and so don't you have every incentive to change the toilet paper roll when it gets down to four squares, right? Why do we do this? You know, I, I think I just start off with a, with a moment of honesty. Do we have a tendency sometimes to try to avoid these small, annoying, everyday tasks that need to be done? We do, don't we? We don't like to do this. So let me give you another example. You ever see this in your refrigerator? If you have, if you have teenagers, say amen, right? Um, it's almost like, again, like you go, hey, why do we leave empty jugs in the refrigerator? But it's not empty. There's still some in there. It's like, just in case you would ever have a young English beggar show up at your door, please, sir, please, do. can I have just a thimble full of juice? And you're like, oh, I can accommodate that. I've got that, right? But here, let me tell you, I, I can tell you why we do this. It's because if we have to throw this away, we have to smash all the trash down, right? Or we have to take the trash out. And if we don't take the trash out, we can, we, can smush, we can always just smush one more thing in the trash, can't we? But then eventually we smush so much that when you go to take whoever does finally step up to take the trash out, you can't get the bag out because everything's smashed against the sides, right? And so now I have to admit, I've been complicit in this. Um, I've also been a victim of this. But, but here's the deal. Here's, here's the thing. Um, why do we avoid the garbage can? Because it's full. Why do we avoid uh, the juice, throwing the juice away? Because we know it's going to drive another task in our day. It's going to drive taking out the garbage can. We can always shove one more thing in, but when we do, we make it difficult for somebody else. How, how does this play out? Well, the way it plays out is we have a tendency not to want to, not all the time, but not to want to serve the people we live with and we love and that we're friends with. We'd rather sacrifice like this one last gulp of juice and leave it in the bottle than have to go perform a task that, in, in, let's just be real, is going to serve our family, right, to, to get rid of this. Now, how does this play out at my house? Well, let me tell you. My wife does the dishes pretty much every day. 
She gets up before everybody else. She toils away in solitude and anonymity. Nobody ever knows it's getting done. But when we wake up in the morning, the dishes are done. They're put away. Uh, but every once in a while, I'll see the sink pile up and I'll think, you know what? I'm going to bless my wife and I'm going to wash the dishes. And so um, I walk around, you know, for a while with my chest puffed out. Like I got a big S on my chest. Like I did the dishes. And if nobody notices... I'll make sure sometimes that I find a way to make sure that she knows that I did the dishes. So honey, I, uh, I changed that light bulb over the sink today, finally. Um, and I did it because when I was, I was washing the dishes and I couldn't see that spot. And so I thought, well, I'm gonna change the light bulb. So I stopped washing the dishes for a moment and I got the ladder out and I changed the light bulb so that I could go on with washing the dishes because I knew that you had a busy day and I didn't want you to have to worry about whether the dishes were gonna be clean or not when you got home. So I washed the dishes for you so that you wouldn't have to wash the dishes when you got home, right? So aren't I a gem of a husband? Now, don't you wish that I lived in your house? Now, we can laugh at the silliness of our actions, but I wanna ask you this. How many issues in marriage, in love relationships, in friendships, in family, uh, could be avoided if we just did a better job of serving one another. I mean, how many of these problems that we have can be traced back to our unwillingness to serve? That's what avoiding these mundane tasks really is, isn't it? It's It's a resistance to serve one another. I mean, sure, at first, the unwashed dishes, the unfolded laundry, the unreturned phone call or text doesn't seem like really that big of a deal, but slowly, your annoyance starts to grow, resentment can build, we start to feel some distance between us, and before we know it, something in us is struggling to love the other person. And some of you are wondering, when did Steve come to my house? (laughs) So we got two weeks left in this series called In the Flesh. We've been studying the life and ministry of Jesus, and because this is only a 13-week series, um, we've had to skip some things. We've had to skip some important events in the life of Jesus. We've skipped a number of things along the way, but that's nothing like what's going to happen in the next two weeks because we've got two weeks left and we are going to skip some things that you're going to go, I can't believe they didn't talk about that or I can't believe they missed that. Well, let me tell you, it's all there in black and white in scripture. You can go read it and we encourage you to do that. Uh, Last week, we challenged you to become a kingdom worker, right? We talked about, you know, the promise that Jesus made. He made a great promise that the harvest is plentiful. But he also laid out a problem. He said, but the problem is the workers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. But then he gave us the answer. He gave us the solution. He said, pray for more workers and then go engage in the harvest. And he wanted to tell us it's important for us to be willing to share our faith with others. Well, today has everything to do with living a life that gets the attention of other people. And not in a provocative, controversial, over-tweeting, over-exposing, kind of Kardashian kind of way of getting people's attention but getting people's attention by becoming a servant. I wanna talk to you about the role that serving should play in the life of a Christian. Why serving? Well, because serving is the life that Jesus modeled for us. It's the way that he lived his life, from his closest friends, uh, to the people he met along the way as he taught, to the large crowds, Jesus modeled a life of service for us. Uh, We can learn a lot. from the life of service that Jesus modeled for us. We can learn to better serve our family, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our students at our school, and in people in everyday encounters. In a culture where we are encouraged to look out for ourselves, look out for numero uno, um, how might God want to use your willingness to serve others, and especially in this season, where people kind of look to the church and look to Christians for the model that we should be around Christmas, right or wrong, people are gonna look at us and say, well, you're Christians, this is your Christ, this is your holiday, 
They're going to look to us for how we act. Uh, how might God want to use your willingness to serve to get the attention to others and to give you the right to speak into somebody's life and into their faith? And so our text this morning is John 13. Uh, uh, we're going to start with verse 1. Jesus' close friend, John, uh, this is the Apostle John, writes about one of the most beautiful portrayals of love and service recorded in Scripture. Now, John was in the room when it happened, and he remembers this account as follows, John 13, 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Well, what is Passover? Well, Passover is a celebration that the Jews observed every year. It's to remember the faithfulness of God. Of course, this is many uh, hundreds of years after the, pass the first Passover, but it was a time they were instructed to remember back to when their ancestors were slaves in Egypt, and God miraculously freed them from captivity. He used a man named Moses to free them from captivity in Egypt. And he finally did it by killing off all the firstborn sons in Egypt, in the firstborn livestock. And, but he passed over the sons of Israel. You probably remember that story. It's from the book of Exodus. And that's why every year around this time, the Jews would celebrate Passover. And they would celebrate it uh, with family and with a meal, almost like our Thanksgiving, right? But they're remembering truly the thankfulness of God. And that's why Jesus is actually in Jerusalem at this time. Jesus has come back to Jerusalem for the Passover. It said Jesus knew that the hour had come. He knew that his hour of humiliation was near that the cross was coming where he would give his life as the ultimate example of love and service. And this event that uh, John records happened on Thursday evening. Uh, so Jesus was crucified on a Friday. So in less than 24 hours, he would be dead. And it says that uh, he knew that the hour had come and he loved them to the end. That's what the scripture says. He loved them to the end. And another translation uh, says he loved them to the fullest extent as Jesus faces arrest and betrayal and his crucifixion, he wants to communicate to his disciples the full extent of his love. And so he's got this chance, and he could teach them a lesson. He could teach them from Scripture. Uh, he could uh, be praying with them. Um, but what is crazy is that Jesus knew that his hour had come, and what he decides to do is he wants to do something to show them, like to show them his love. He wants to love his disciples in an active way, in an intentional way. So what does he do? Verse 2, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, uh, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So we got to remember this. This is important. The, the devil had taken over Judas and he had prompted him to betray Jesus. So Jesus, uh, we're going to see at this meal, knows that and understands that. Um, but when we think about the evening meal, most of us think about a picture that looks something like this. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci's portrayal of the Last Supper. Um, this is the famous picture. Most of us, when we think about the Last Supper, we think about a picture, a table that's set kind of like this and a picture that looks like this. Um, but the problem with this is that that's a very European table. <laughs> you might notice that it has chairs. That people are sitting at chairs. They're sitting, the table sits at about waist level. And it's a very long table where people would be uh, at the ends, across the ends. And obviously this was... Um, just like on TV when you see people sitting, have you ever noticed that? There's nobody sitting with their back to the camera. You know, in this case, there's nobody sitting with their back to the painter. They're all on one side. This is a very uh, European portrayal of what the meal might have looked like. But four passages in Scripture that we see indicate something different about this meal. 
you look at Matthew 26, 20, Mark 14, 18, or Luke 22, 14, or John 13, 23, these passages suggest that the people are reclining at the table, reclining at the table. Do you remember that from a few weeks ago? We talked about um, when uh, the woman came to, a sinful woman came in to anoint Jesus' feet, how they would recline at the table, uh, especially for important meals like Passover. So it probably looked more something like this where the table is very low, it's down around knee level, and the people would recline on their left side and sit up on one elbow. It's a three-sided table shaped like a U, and every seating position had uh, something important to say about who the person was. So within the cultural context, uh, Jesus, you can see in this picture, Jesus is the one dressed in white over at the far corner. He's in the second seat, was actually position number one. I'll show you this in a minute. Um, Jesus is in position number one. That's where the host would sit. Uh, to his right would be a trusted friend, uh, and, that, and we'll see that in a minute, and to his left would be the guest of honor. Now, this is really interesting because uh, what we see from Scripture is that Judas was likely right next to Jesus, probably in position two to Jesus' left. We know this because when Jesus took the bread and dipped it, he passed it to Judas, is what Scripture tells us. And so it probably looks something like this if we look at that table organization. Jesus is in the host position, position one, which is actually the second seat. I know that's a little confusing. Judas is in position two, which is the guest of honor. And John is in position three, which is that of a trusted friend. And then we go around the table after Judas is before five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Now, something else that you'll probably notice here is that it's very likely that Peter was in the thirteenth position, that he was the servant. That's where the head servant would sit. He's on the opposite side of Jesus. The chief apostle is sitting at the seat of the servant. Peter, you know, the one whom uh, Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to at this very important meal, is sitting at the, head ser- at the part of the head servant. Think about the lesson here. Even before this meal began, what lesson was Jesus trying to teach his disciples, and specifically Peter, about leadership? And in this moment, Jesus is going to teach us a lesson about leadership too. And the question that he's going to answer for us in this meal is this. How do you spot a leader? How do you spot a leader? How do you see the person who's the most powerful person in the room? How do you know that? Well, that seating arrangement would also meant that Judas was parked right next to Jesus, which, um, you know, Judas is the one who would betray Jesus, but Judas was in the seat of honor. It seems that even to the very end, Jesus loved Judas and desired to teach him of his love by placing him at the most important seat. It was as if Jesus was trying to give Judas one less reason to betray him, But Jesus at some point gives Judas a sop. We see that in scripture when he passes the the bread around. He gives Judas a sop, a piece of bread dipped in broth, yet another sign of honor, but Judas had already made up his mind. Can you even imagine what it would take uh, to be such a servant that you would place someone who would become your mortal enemy just to your left side? But really, are we surprised? I mean, isn't it just like Jesus to give that type of seat? the seat of honor to someone like Judas, the same guy who's about to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And he's gonna be the first to experience the full extent of Jesus's love. Judas is about to stab Jesus in the back. And what does Jesus do? He lets him sit right behind his back as they're reclining at the table. He's gonna serve him in an incredible way. I think this is a small but significant detail highlights something important about serving. And it's this, uh, serving isn't about what the other person deserves. You know, a lot of times we're willing to serve somebody if they deserve it. 
right? We're willing to serve somebody if they've done something for us. You ever catch yourself saying things like, uh, well, I've done the dishes the last three nights. It's his turn. Well, he didn't give me a ride to the airport, so why should I take him now? Well, she never offers to watch my kids. Why should I help her? We kind of make serving a, a kind of a quid pro quo, don't we? Like you do something for me, I'll do something for you. And it makes it really easy for us to keep score. It's really easy to live that way. But serving at its heart isn't really about how the other person will react or what the other person deserves. Judas didn't deserve to have the seat of honor. Jesus didn't serve his friends because they deserved it. Jesus served because that's who he is. He is love. He came to serve and to model serving for us. And he shows us through this simple and profound act that if you think serving is below you, then you're putting yourself above Jesus because Jesus was never below serving anyone. John 13, three, let's go on with the story. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power. Stop, stop for just for a minute. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power. What would you do if you knew you had all power under your control? Don't think about that too long because it can get ugly. But Jesus knew that he had all power. He had all power. He's got this uh, night where he is the, the honored guest at this dinner. He's the host. He's got all of his friends together. He's got all power under his authority. What is he going to do? He, he knows that God had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So what's he going to do? So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. Now picture this. This is just hours before he would be arrested and tortured and crucified. Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples. Now, we've already talked about this in this series. You know, this was not a preferred job. It was smelly. It was disgusting. It was degrading. It was the task reserved for the lowest servant on the totem pole in Israel. Uh, no host would ever wash the feet of his guests. He would have the servant do that. The servant was supposed to do that. In Jewish culture, for Jesus, the teacher to bend down and wash the feet of his students was almost intolerable. It was absurd. I mean, compare it to politics today. Think about our leaders today and how uh, they want to accumulate power for themselves. And in most cases, when we see people who are in positions of power, they're not getting there by serving other people. Or maybe they get there by serving other people, but once they get there, they're so exalted and so placed on a pedestal that it becomes all about accumulating power. It's about accumulating power instead of giving love, right? It's about grabbing power for ourselves instead of giving love. Now, notice this wasn't Jesus's job. He was the host. This night should have been all about him. It should have been the servant's job. Who was in the servant's seat? Peter. Now, let's just talk about Peter for a minute. Certainly, Peter standing amongst the disciples should have been that he would have had a place of honor at the table. There should have been a place of honor for him. Jesus changed his name to, from Simon to Peter, which means rock. Remember that at Caesarea Philippi? He'd given him the keys to the kingdom, and months earlier, uh, he had done that. Jesus was in the process of elevating Peter to be one of the rabbis. There was a lot of honor and privilege and dignity that comes with this kind of a role. And yet at this Passover meal, Jesus puts him in the lowest of seats, the seat of a servant. So put yourself in Peter's place for a minute. We're all human. We've all got something in our flesh that wants us to have honor 
and glory and to be exalted. When Peter walked in, he was probably hoping that he would be exalted, that he would be honored, that he would be elevated to a place of honor, especially when Jesus is talking about, I'm going to have to go away, um, I'm going to come, but then I'm going to come back, but you guys are going to have to figure this out without me. Peter's probably thinking, well, I'm going to be the rabbi, I'm going to be the leader of this, this joint, so I need to probably have a place of honor. And so you can imagine the pain that Peter is in as Jesus makes his way around the table, washing the disciples' feet one after the other after the other, and finally gets to the 13th seat, to the seat of the servant, to Peter. Is it any wonder that John records this as Peter's reaction? He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Now, how true is that of our service, that Sometimes when somebody does something little for us, that we don't really realize the impact that it has on us until much, much later. <laughs> I didn't plan to tell this story, but I'm going to tell this story about my wife, and I hope I'll get in trouble later. But my wife, when our friends move to a new house, do you know what my wife does? She goes to their new house and washes and cleans all their toilets. Do you know why she does that? Because when we moved to our new house, a friend of hers came over and cleaned all of the toilets, and it made such an impact on her that that's what she goes and does. She probably didn't realize it at the time. It was just, hey, a friend coming over to spend some time with us and cleaning, but it had such an impact on her that she goes to our friend's houses and she cleans it. She always brings a toilet brush and toilet cleaner and cleans their toilets because it has a big impact. Jesus said, you do not realize what I'm doing now, but later you will understand. And then Peter, Peter says, no, you shall never wash my feet. And then Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And in this moment, Peter got his answer. How do you spot a leader? How do you find the most powerful person in the room? He's the one with the dirty feet. Have you thought about this? The one guy in the scenario who didn't get his feet washed was Jesus. He spends all his time caring for others. He's washing other people's feet. The host, the leader, uh, the one who threw the party. He's the guy that walks around with the dirty feet. Jesus modeled this life for us. He calls us to pattern our life after him. In a, in a world where people spend so much time looking out for themselves, imagine the difference that serving could make in the people around you, where you live, where you play, where you go to school, where you work. Every day we have the opportunity to carry out simple, mundane acts of service that communicate love, communicate the love of Christ to others. Author Shane Claiborne once said, everybody wants a revolution, but no one wants to do the dishes. And we are energized, maybe to a fault, by these big, exciting acts of service that get the most attention. But I think what Jesus wants us to realize is that serving is a way of life. Sometimes that means giving ourselves to really big things. But most of the time, it's an every day, every moment, in every encounter of life. It means, you know, listening to that neighbor who's struggling means talking to that kid in the school lunchroom that nobody else wants to talk to. It's, it's helping out a single parent on your street. It's all these kind of things. This is what Jesus is demonstrating here. Skip down to verse 12. It says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus says, and I think specifically to Peter, he's talking to Peter here, 
this is how I want you to lead. This is how I want you to live. This is what he says to the rest of his disciples. This is how I want you to live. This is what I want you to be known for. And this is what he's saying to us 2,000 years later. Hey, church, this is what I want you to be known for. There's another place in scripture where Jesus says, this is how they will know you're my disciples, how you love one another. Well, how do we love one another? Well, it says in this passage that Jesus loved his disciples to the very end, right? He loved them to the fullest extent. So, so maybe we could ask the question this way. How do you spot a follower? In other words, how do you spot a follower of Jesus? A willingness to serve, humility, love, compassion, concern for others around you. If your Lord has dirty feet and you've made it your life's work to follow him, shouldn't you have the dirtiest feet in the room? Jesus showed him that. And then he says, follow my example. In the ancient world, uh, the word he uses for example here means a pattern or a tracing that someone else would follow, filling in all the details. Think of it like a, a template that provides a guide. I mean, I, let's just be real. We're in the 21st century. We have bathtubs and showers and shoes. And this is not actually about washing people's feet, right? This is about the model, the pattern that Jesus outlined for us. And, and here's what's so amazing about that. This, this, these beautiful acts of service. When we serve, we make Jesus visible for others. There are people on our street, in our school, in our workplace, in our family that don't see Jesus for who he is. But when we serve, we can show Jesus who people is. As we live this life of service, we can help others experience Jesus. Jesus is made visible when we serve. Every time we have coffee with somebody who's lonely, every time we rake leaves for a neighbor, every time we lend a hand or lend a car or give something away, these acts of service provide a glimpse of Jesus to others. And Lord willing, maybe they open a door for a spiritual conversation. You know, if we remember, we talked a couple weeks ago when Jesus sent out the 12 to do ministry, what did he do? He sent them out to, do, to uh, meet physical needs and spiritual needs at the same time. Whenever we do ministry, we've got to meet physical needs and spiritual needs at the same time. I want to ask you to think seriously how you might make serving a priority in your life, and especially if you're trying to reach somebody to help them find their way back to God. There's four, four ways, just really quickly, I want to cover uh, that this holiday season you can use serving uh, in your life. Number one is just everyday stuff, like everyday serving. Who are the people that God's put around you? Uh, who do you spend the most time with? What, what resources, what gifts, what words do you have that might make all the difference to somebody else. So everyday serving, who's around you all of the time? Who are the people you can serve? Who are the little things like taking out the trash or changing the toilet paper roll the right way? I mean, there's stuff that you can do in your home, uh, in your school, in your workplace. The second thing is this, how might you do something special for someone else? You know, is there a family? Is there a, an individual? Would you be willing to ask God to pray and just put, have him put a specific name on your mind, a specific family, a specific need uh, in someone's life, a gift you could give, an act of service or love that might make all the difference to somebody else? There are people all around you, if you look, that are hurting, that need help. Would God put one of those people on your heart to take care of here at Christmas? Maybe there's a way to serve with a group of people. Maybe you think, well, you know what? I can't, I can't take care of a need for somebody, but as a group, we might be able to do something. Now, one of our connection groups prepared meals for Food for Souls uh, last week. They did this together. They involved their kids. They prayed over the food before it was delivered uh, to Food for Souls. We've had other groups that have taken evening mission trips where they go down to the circle and they pass out food and, and gloves and hats to the homeless. Uh, we have groups that have served together at Shepherd Community or at Wheeler Mission. What if your group united not just around relationships, but around mission? 
Because I have to tell you that the closest relationships aren't made around the dinner table or the card table. They're made in the mission field. That's why when people come back from Haiti, they always have this glow about them. You know, and when you, when you, if you ask anybody who's been to Haiti, hey, what really stood out to you? They will say this, we had a great team. Everybody says that. And I know some of the people who've gone to Haiti and I wouldn't say that about those people, but I haven't been to Haiti with them. But when you go and when you unite around mission, even people that you might not hang out with on a regular basis become dear friends and family because you've united around this mission. So could you get together with a group of people and this Christmas unite around a mission? And then the fourth way is to participate and love your neighbor. As uh, Jamie talked about in the video, as Danielle talked about out here, uh, one more way to serve the under-resourced or the challenged in Indianapolis is through Food for Souls or Restored. Restored is an incredible ministry. It's a local ministry that helps girls that have been caught in the sex trade, um, but they have a nationwide reach. And it's so incredible that they're right here in our backyard. Uh, you can pick up a list, you can donate, you can sign up to serve on our app uh, to go down to uh, uh, help our homeless brothers and sisters with Food for Souls. John Wesley said it this way, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. And as you serve, pray that God opens a door to share the love of Christ with words too. Because the Bible says that faith comes by hearing. Jesus is our model. He's our example for life. And here's what I hope you'll see in this. Often we, we think about Jesus serving us by going to the cross, which is as important as that is. I mean, it's an event that we're kind of glossing over in this series. The cross is something that we're not really gonna spend a lot of time on, but let me tell you why because the cross didn't win. <laughs> the cross didn't have the final say because three days later, Jesus was risen from the dead. He, he, death was defeated. So the cross doesn't have the final say. We'll reflect on the cross in just a moment by taking communion together. And going to the cross, sure, was Jesus's one big act of service at the end of his life. And it's good and it's important. And it's really important for those of us who have made Jesus the center of our life because our eternities are secure because, with God because of that event. So that's important and we're thankful but what I want you to see through this, this message, this lesson today is that service, um, God, Jesus' whole life was an act of service. Philippians 2 says it this way, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. The very nature of a servant. He, he didn't just serve when he chose to serve. He didn't just serve people who deserved it or serve the people that he wanted to serve. He had the very nature, scripture says, the very nature of a servant. I'll just tell you what that looks like real quick. Um, when we think about serving, we sometimes think of uh, like big acts of service, like writing a thousand dollar check. Okay. It's like, I'm just going to go all in on this big thing. And, and that's my act of service. I know I need to serve. I want to do it in a big way so I can do it with one big act of service. I just write that check uh, for service, you know. But the Christian life, I think, is more like carrying around $1,000 worth of quarters. And Jesus says, everywhere you go, I just want you to pass out these quarters. Just little acts of service your entire life. That's what it means to have the nature of a servant. But with Jesus, he did both. He had both the nature of a servant and then being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Jesus left the glory of heaven to become one of us, to come down to earth and to give his life for those he created, for you and for me. And we're gonna take a moment here in the service to remember his great sacrifice. We receive the bread, which represents his body and the juice, which represents his blood um, broken and shed for us on the cross. And as, as we receive the elements today, I hope that we'll remember him, but also we commit ourselves and our relationships with one another to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, to, to, to take on the nature of our servant. So I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna pray here in a minute. And when I'm done praying, you can uh, make your way to the back or the front. There are four tables up here. We're gonna take communion together before we finish by singing one more song. And uh, when you pick a cup out of the tray, I just want you to know that there are two cups stacked together. The bottom one has the bread. You'll take that first. That's Christ's body that was broken for us. And then the top one is the juice, which represents his blood, which was spilled for us on the cross. And uh, you can get those, take them back to your seat and take them in your own time. But uh, just what we believe about communion here at Genesis is if you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to take it with us. You don't have to be a part of this church, or, uh, but you just need to have made Jesus the center of your life. And so let's pray together and then we'll take communion together. God, I'm so thankful for this example of service. And I just admit, I confess from the beginning that I fall short so many times. I, uh, I see your example and I want to follow your example, but Lord, the flesh calls sometimes and it's easy to get distracted and off track from what you've called us to do. Lord, help me to serve this Christmas season. Help me to serve my family, uh, my friends. Help me to be aware. Help us as a church to be aware of the needs. Even here in our community, even in this room, there are people thinking, I'd love to serve, but I need to be served. Lord, help us to see those needs even right here in our community, in our street, and in our school, and our workplace. And as we come to you, come to you for the taking of communion. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus. We thank you for his death on the cross that frees us up from sin and guilt and shame, and it gives us an eternity with you. And as we take these elements, we remember that, God. We remember until you come back that you gave your life for us. We thank you for that in Jesus' name.